We have a strict rule in Nashville, you never sing before the crack of 11. <laughs> and so I just let you t have those high notes. You do those. Yeah. Jump right in there. Man up. Sing those high notes, because I can't do it this early in the morning. <clears throat> oh, water. When you're at the cove, if you need something, it's going to be within arm's reach, right? You know, you need a toothbrush, it's going to be in the drawer right next to you, right? You need water, it's going to be somewhere close by. Um, but before we get started, there's, there's been some talk going around, and I just wanted to you know, nip this in the bud, because we're really better than this, people. We need, we need to focus on what's really important. I've heard, overheard several people talking about this. It's about how good my new shirt looks. <laughs> uh, Susan gave me this shirt yesterday, and you know what? We're just better than this, people. It's more important things to talk about than how good my shirt looks. So let's just, <laughs> let's just move on, right? Let's just move <laughs> Oh. Serious up, Mike. Serious up. Okay. Let's let's go to Mark two. Let's go to Mark two, and uh, the the momentum you know starts starts to build. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but <sighs> a few days later, we when we when we left Jesus. Um, last, he was out in the Eremos Tapas, out in the wilderness, in a lonely place, a solitary place, a deserted place, however you want to try to uh, uh, think of that word. And even though he's out in the wilderness, people are still coming to him. Um, and we're going to see that just build. He cannot get away from the crowd. Okay. Uh, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So again, Capernaum is kind of his home, hometown. So many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door. We talked about this, uh, that the, we think, as far as we know, the, the population of Capernaum is about 1,500. The low estimate is 500, so it goes from five to 15. But uh, in, in a town where, you know, I mean, a house is probably about as big as this stage, and, the, and literally the, the walkways are about as big as this. Even 500 people crowding a house is just going to be ridiculous, okay? Um, and he uses the word aklos for the crowd, and some people translate that mob. I mean, he's being mobbed, okay? Um, so many people gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached to them. And you're waiting, and what did he say? Mark is not interested in that, okay? Matthew's interested in what he says. If, if we take all of the red letters in Mark, and this is, a real, this is what real geeks, a serious geek does this. I got a red letter Bible. I read all the red letters and timed myself. Jesus speaks for about 20 minutes in Mark. Uh, he speaks for an hour and a half in Luke. See, Mark is not interested in so much what he says, he's interested in what he does. That's his focus. Um, so he preached to them. And if you're, if you're waiting for a sermon, you're gonna have a long time to wait. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic, a paralytic um, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him because of the 
crowd, the mob, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was on. Uh, When Jesus saw their faith, um, I had a good friend, John Eves, who died of cancer. Uh, John and I studied together. He was at Western. He was a remarkable guy. His father was one of the... um, he owned part of a huge company and John could have just walked right into that world. And instead, John responded to the call of Jesus on his life, became a missionary in the Philippines. And we, he was just the exemplary follower of Jesus. Faith like crazy. And uh, he got cancer, stomach cancer and was dying. And he got a, a group of us around, around his bed once and he said, you're gonna have to be the friends that carry me to Jesus because I just don't have the resources to do this anymore. And that's really partly what this is teaching. Jesus sees their faith. It's the guys who carry him. You know, it's, it, they're, they're part of this miracle too. They've dug a hole in the roof. I mean, for goodness sakes, imagine Peter's response. Uh, he's got to fix that. Um, but, but, you know, and again, you've heard this story a million times, right? We know these stories back and backwards and forwards. Hear it as if you're hearing it for the first time. They tore a hole in the roof of his house, right? I can't overemphasize how covered up Jesus is with people. So, and they let this guy in and Jesus sees their faith and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, there is a, a relationship between sickness and sin, it's not as simple as we want it to be, right? There's some denominations that says if you're, if, well, my sister lost her child, um, her first baby, someone in her church says you must have done something wrong. And we've grown because we realize in our hearts <clears throat> the connection between sickness and sin is not that simple, right? Um, is there sickness that comes because of sin? Absolutely. Is sickness always the result of someone's personal sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Obviously, sickness coming into the world is part of the fall and and all that stuff. We want the answer to be one thing, and it's not one thing. It's just not that simple. Uh, And so, but but in this case, Jesus heals the man by forgiving his sin. And uh, this is a great, if you're writing a song, this is not necessarily implied in the text, but it's a really good idea for a song. Uh, Sin paralyzes, right? All sin sort of paralyzes you, so... <clears throat> I don't know if Mark is thinking that, but, but he, he pronounces uh, forgiveness of his sins and, and that, that's what heals him. But by doing that, Jesus is opening a can of worms and you got to know he knows he is, right? The, the, the outrage of the Pharisees is not surprising him. So here we go. And um, have, we, have we heard it's a Sabbath yet? Yeah, I think this, I don't know if this is a Sabbath healing or not. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. That is always a sign in the gospel of a bad person. I'm not kidding. If you think to yourself, Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7, he thinks to himself, if he just knew what kind of person this was, he wouldn't let. People who think things to themselves tend to be bad people. Okay? Okay? Just, it's just a little literary device. So they're thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Are they right? They're right. Only God can forgive sins. They just don't understand who they're dealing with. 
you know, the son of God. Immediately, there's Mark's favorite word. Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking. Now, one of the things that we'll never get to the bottom of is where do you draw the line in Jesus' divinity and his humanity? Okay? Uh, is he here just being especially insightful? Because it's not hard to guess what these kind of people are thinking. Or does he really have this extraordinary power? We just, well, we know he has extraordinary power. We just don't, we just don't know where the line is. Because we do know from time to time, he'll ask people questions. He'll ask people what their name is, or he'll ask people, you know, where did that person go that he's looking for? So it's not just that he's, you know, he's got these fully divine powers that God has to know everything all the time. The, the, the incarnation brought some limitations. We just don't know where the line is, right? And again, we want the answer to be one thing, and it's just not. Sometimes he asks for information, and sometimes he knows, so we're not going to get to the end of that. And, and, and I think I'm making this point. It's important to me because I just don't want you to be tempted to argue with someone about this. Because we just don't know. We just don't know. So, but he has this insight. Uh, and he understands what they're thinking in their hearts. And he says, why are you thinking these things? And very rabbinically says, which is easier to say? That's very, very rabbinic. Um, <clears throat> actually comes to us all the way from Hillel, the interpretive principle of, of Hillel. I think there were seven of them. One, one of them was called Kalva Homer, which is greater. And Jesus uses that one all the time. Okay? So, you know, what's easier? Which is greater? What's easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your mat and walk? Well, it's real easy to say to someone, you forgive, your sins are forgiven, right? I can just say that. But to tell someone, get up and walk, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? And so now what does he do? Which he's, you know, he's going to tell them to get up and walk. So, um, so which is easier? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. And NIV has, but that you may know. It's in, the Greek is more direct. It just says, know. Know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That was the issue they were talking to themselves about. Only God forgives sins. He goes, okay, let's make this clear, fellas. I have the authority to forgive sins. Okay? Um, he said to the paralytic, take, uh, I tell you, take up your mat, go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out. And this is the first time I've ever noticed that detail. This morning I saw that. He walks out. I mean, can you picture that? He, Jesus heals him. He goes, okay, take your mat and go home. He walks out, and then they're all still sitting around. The, the object of the object lesson just walked away. The paralyzed object of the object lesson just walked away over the, you know, the, the grass and the mud from the roof that had been you know, ripped open. He goes, excuse me, guys, I'm going home now. You know, walking, walking home. So they're just, now, now the, the object lesson is gone. Uh, he, he, he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. See, this amazed everyone and they praised God. Remember my point about his miracles? When Jesus does miracles, he wins praise for God. No one's praising Jesus. And I cannot explain this. I can observe it, but I cannot explain this. Is it his countenance? Is it just that he is so incredibly humble that people realize, you know, I probably shouldn't do that? 
Is it that he always points to God in everything he does? I don't know. But I think it's a very interesting facet of his miracles. He always points away from himself and he always wins praise for God. So the man walks away and people praise God. They say, we've never seen anything like this. And of course, this is one of the classic signs of the coming of the Messiah, right? Isaiah 35, uh, Jeremiah uh, 31, when the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like deer. Classic sign of the coming of the Messiah. And believe me, these Pharisees know their Bibles better than we ever will. Their Old Testament, better than we ever will. They weren't ter- terribly familiar with the New Testament at this point. <laughs> Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and Peter's house is you know, probably, I don't know, 40 yards from the lake. Uh, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him. See, they're always there. A large crowd came and he began to teach them. As he walked along, He's teaching them as he walks along. Peripatetic, but it's, it's also, it's, this is how you do it in Judaism. You, you're walking and teaching. But to sit down is also a sign that you're gonna teach. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And I got interested in that word this morning because I thought, oh, that's just table. But I looked up and go, no, it's, it's, some people translate it tax office. So it's, some, it's not just a table. I don't know what it is, but I know it's not just a table. I mean, I, I want to picture him just a, a thing like this, but he's at, is his, at his booth or at his office. So that word booth intrigued me. I thought, okay, some translator's struggling with some word here. You know, is that, uh, so Jesus walks up to this person. As far as we know, they've had no prior contact. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. We don't know. But he, he gives this authoritative command, follow me. Jesus told him, And he gets up and he follows him. Now that's stark. He walks away. And what is that? That is the absolute lordship of Jesus. Jesus tells terrible, uh, terrible, paralyzed people. Well, he tells terrible people too. He, He tells paralyzed people, get up. And they get up. In Luke, the man who's lame for 38 years doesn't even know who Jesus is. He's investigated earlier and they ask him who healed you and he has no idea who healed him. He's been lame for 38 years. Jesus walks up to him and says, get up. What happens? He gets up. Why? Absolute lordship of Jesus. Now, there, you will hear sometimes that Jesus could not heal people who didn't have faith in him. That's absolutely false. He heals people who don't know who he is. He heals people in absentia. Go home your servant's healed. We don't, there are no limitations to his lordship. Now, the Bible does say things like he didn't do very many miracles there because the people had no faith. So there is a connection there. But you don't take that verse and parlay that into a teaching that Jesus can't heal people who don't have faith in him because clearly the evidence says no. His lordship is absolute. No rules. <laughs> no rules on this man, Right? He can do it however he wants to. You, and so if he comes up to you and says, follow me, let me get back to you. Let me, let me talk to my wife, see if this works out. That's not how it works. And to American Christians, that's hard. We wanna, we wanna talk our way out. We wanna backstroke our way out of this. But his lordship is absolute. His lordship is absolute. I think that's, I think that's important. 
So um, then Mark jumps right to the party. Uh, while he was having dinner, Luke calls it a great banquet. So he throws a big party. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners, sinners, were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Many, again, there's this crowd. There are many people who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that's a very good question. Now, I can tell you for certain, the Pharisees are at the door. They're not going in, right? So they're standing outside, or maybe there's a low wall. I don't know exactly what Matthew's house was set up like, but they're not inside. I can trust me on this. They're not inside, because they might touch something that will make them unclean. And, uh, but it's also interesting to me that it seems like some of Jesus' disciples are out there with them. Now, I don't want to you know, I don't want to eisegete, I don't want to add to the text, but I wonder if some of Jesus' disciples won't go in either. Just wondering, I wouldn't be dogmatic, never be dogmatic about what the Bible's not dogmatic about. But it's a very good question. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now we know, if you look at, for example, that Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7, which is a very important passage in understanding Phariseeism, they've got labels for everyone, Right? And there are the righteous, and then there are the sinners, right? Sinners. Uh, and Simon the Pharisee is a great example. There's a woman who comes into his house who's weeping, and she's a sinner. And Simon says, Jesus is a prophet. Those are his categories. And let me tell you, one of the easiest ways to live your life is just to categorize people, is to label people. It's so easy. It makes your life so much easier. Just label people, you know? That's a man. You know how men are. You know, that's a woman. You know how women are. Well, that's a millennial or a whatever. You know, we have so many labels. We label people so that we don't have to deal with them. We label people so that we don't have to learn their names. We label people so that we don't have to find out what hurts them. If you really want to get to know somebody, find out what hurts them. That's how you really get to know someone. And Paul, doesn't he, says all the labels are off. Jew, Greek, even male, female. We, we do not categorize people anymore. You know, we stand before each other's individuals. We learn each other's names. That's very important. That's very important. This, you know, uh, okay, I'll stop beating that horse. I've said it. I usually say it three or four times and then I'll be done. Maybe five times and I'll be done. Okay, so tax collectors, sinners. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, I did my homework. I, actually, I did your homework this morning at about five o'clock on this passage. Okay, my old notes, and if you read my, my uh, commentary on this, you'll see that I will say, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. That is an old rabbinic statement from a book called the Makilta uh, that was written. Well, I'm not going to tell you when it was written yet. And lots of the commentaries do this. They'll say, Jesus is quoting a rabbinic saying. There's a parable that Jesus tells that's a classic rabbinic parable. 
And all the commentaries will say, Jesus takes this parable and he changes the end. But I did my homework, and this is, a, this is not rocket science. I Googled it on my phone. Okay? I looked up this Makilta, and it was credited to a, to a rabbi, and I looked up the rabbi to find out when he wrote. Guess when he wrote? Second century AD. Now, what does that mean? You make the conclusion. Who's quoting who? The rabbi's quoting Jesus. Now, I'm just a banjo player from Nashville, so I can do stuff like this. I'm, there's no, you know, there's no university standing behind me that's going to be embarrassed by this. But I can tell you, everyone that I've looked up, it's, it's the rabbis who are quoting Jesus and not Jesus who's quoting the rabbis. Okay? This Makilta came late second century. And, uh, Yeah. I've got, to, I've got to corner some of my Jewish friends and ask them what they think about that. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of some other examples. I will, we'll hit other examples later and, and we'll see, see what you think. But my old note says, a traditional proverb, and then it gets the, the source from the Makilta. And I, and I said, my note was, the Pharisees would have to accept this because he's quoting from this rabbinic book. But he's quoting from a rabbinic book that was written two, you know, 200 years after this happened. So something else is going on, okay? Um, now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Does that bother you? Think about that. John's, the, John's disciples, now John's in prison by this point. Okay, his disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. At another point, I think it's in Luke, the Pharisees and John's disciples come together and ask Jesus a question about prayer. Now, one of the commentaries said, well, sort of in, in uh, John's absence, some of his disciples are just sort of associating themselves with Pharisees. Well, who knows? We don't know. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Pharisees aren't all bad guys. But it's interesting that the, these two groups come together and they are fasting. Now, this is a, a very interesting a very important question in terms of Jewish observance, fasting. Uh, today in Judaism, there are six fasts. There are two major fasts. It means you fast all day. One of them is Yom Kippur, Day of, uh, day of Atonement, and one of them is uh, a commemoration of the destruction of the temple on the ninth of Av. Okay, the, on those two days, if you're an Orthodox Jew, you fast all day. And there are four minor fasts. But in Jesus' day... There was only one fast, once a year, that was mandated, and that's on the Day of Atonement. Let me give you the reference. Um, I looked it up. Leviticus 23, 26-31. I think that's it, yeah. There's one fast, okay. How often do the Pharisees fast? Twice a week. I, did, did I talk to you about the authority of the Pharisees and where it comes from? Have we talked about that yet? Okay, good, good. We'll sidebar this. Before we do, let me check what time I'm supposed to be done. Showing a full grasp of the situation. 1020. Oh, we're doing good. Let's write this down just in case. Okay, 1020. Okay, I'm a Pharisee. Mikhail the Pharisee from, from the village of Ephraim. Hello. Nice to see you. 
let me talk to you about me being a disciple of Moses. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a disciple of Moses. Everything I teach, my authority comes directly from Moses and directly from Sinai. So you better listen to what I have to say. And this is how I, I do that. And this is chapter one of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of the sayings of the rabbis from 200 BC to 200 AD. The Talmud, which is volumes and volumes and volumes, is a commentary on this one book, on the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is, if, if, really, if you really want to get into this, buy yourself a copy of the Mishnah. It's about 50 bucks. Uh, translated by Herbert Danby in 1776. So while we were blowing stuff up, he was translating the Mishnah, okay? So back, back to me, I'm, 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 uh, I'm Michael the Pharisee. This is where my authority comes from. When Moses went up on the mountain, how long was he up there? 40 days and 40 nights. What happened? God gave him the 10 commandments, right? What was he doing the rest of the time? Let me tell you. He was giving to Moses the oral law the oral law, and that is the source of my authority. Moses comes down from the mountains, he gives the 10 commandments to the priests and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Moses goes to the elders, the 70 elders, and he imparts to them the oral law. The oral law. I am a descendant of the elders of Israel. That's my authority, and don't mess with me. My authority comes straight from Moses. That's how the Pharisees do it. Now, um, the oral law, uh, it, it, read the Mishnah, it is mind-numbing. The classes of work and all the things you can't do. The Sabbath especially, they built a, a fence around the Sabbath, okay? One of the, one of the laws in the Mishnah is you cannot spit on the Sabbath. Don't laugh. Hey, who's, who laughed? <laughs> you cannot spit on the Sabbath. Why? I'm going to explain to you why. Because the spit might run downhill. And if it runs downhill, it'll make mud. And making mud is work. So if you're going to honor the Sabbath, you will not spit on the Sabbath. Tell me, how does Jesus heal the man born blind? He spits on the Sabbath. And if you look at the, as they investigate that healing, that's all they want to talk about. Who made the mud? Now, let me ask you another question. Did Jesus break the Sabbath? No. No, he does not break the Sabbath, but he breaks their oral, oral law every chance he gets. He says, those are rules made by men. And if anything makes him angry, it's the fact that they have put this tremendous burden on the people. They have sucked the joy right out of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a wonderful gift. And you know, we do that too, right? But the Sabbath is this wonderful gift of, of, of rest and rejoice, rejoicing that God has given to us. We are not bound by the Sabbath. The Sabbath sets us free. And the Pharisees were spoiling all of that stuff. So you can't spit on the Sabbath. You can't, by the way, blow a candle out on the Sabbath, in case any of you were wondering. 
Because if you blow the candle out, the wick will become charcoal. And making charcoal is work. So don't you let me see you blow a candle out on the Sabbath. If you go to Israel, we have what's called a Shabbat Sabbath elevator. What's a Shabbat elevator? It's an elevator that on the Sabbath automatically stops at every floor. Why? This is work. Yeah. But I'm, so that's one side of it. But let me tell you this, since I've, I've, I've been to Israel 17 times, Sabbath is a big deal. I mean, it's a party every week. They'll, down in the basement of, the, of our hotel, there'll be a big party, and there'll be dancing, there'll be you know, food and music, and they celebrate the Sabbath. So it's when, it, you know, the, when it's over, they celebrate it, and they rest on the Sabbath. So I've, I've seen the Sabbath in a very good, in a very good way there. Why did, oh, so I'm just talking about that's where the Pharisees get their authority, the oral law. Okay, so when they accuse Jesus, in a minute, Jesus' disciples are going to eat grain out of a field. And they are not breaking the law. They are breaking the oral law. Okay, that's not complicated, is it? Does it not make this whole relationship so much clearer? That's the problem. Jesus is not breaking the law. He's perfect. Okay, okay. Okay, thoroughly beat that horse to death. Um. So John and his disciples were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus is clearly innovated. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day... They will fast. What's the reason we fast? What's the purpose of fasting? It's so that we can be more sensitively aware of the presence of God. So in that context, Jesus says, why should they fast? The bridegroom's here. So fasting is really irrelevant when you're walking with the Son of God along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's really no reason to fast. But when he's gone, then they'll fast. So he's not saying fasting is wrong. He's just innovating for the time being. We're not fasting. You guys don't need to fast. Certainly not twice a week. So um, I think that's what's, what's going on there. And now here comes a little, a little a parable, a little lesson, and, and my title of this is The Old Orthodoxy and the New Reality. And basically what Jesus is saying is the old orthodoxy cannot contain the new reality. The old wineskins, it can't contain the new wine. And what Jesus is, part of his good news, the kingdom coming is he's bringing in a new reality. Okay? So that's what this is about, I think. No one sews a patch uh, of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, so a new, a new piece of cloth on an old garment. You don't do that. It doesn't work. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear work. So that doesn't work. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Old orthodoxy won't contain the new reality. That's what he's saying, Okay. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing so good. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, so it said one Sabbath. What does that mean? Whenever you hear Sabbath, 
Okay, after the first chapter, whenever you hear Sabbath, hear this. Minor chord. Because he's going to get in trouble. He's going to get in trouble. So the Pharisees have taken this wonderful thing, and it's basically the day that Jesus gets in the most trouble. Okay. So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. Now, this is completely appropriate biblically. They, uh, there's, uh, your two passages are Deuteronomy 23, 25, um, which gives permission. If I'm a Jewish person and I'm going through your field and you're a Jewish person, I can eat until I'm full. I can't put any grapes in my pocket, but I can eat until I'm full. That's part of the provision of being a Jew, provision. One of the horrible things about being kicked out of Jewish life is that I can't do that anymore and I might starve to death, okay? So they're walking through the fields and they can glean from the corner of the fields as long as they don't use a metal, metal object. See, if you use a metal object, you're harvesting and you can't do that on the Sabbath and that's Exodus 34.21. Exodus 34.21 says, even during harvest times, you don't harvest on the Sabbath, you know, even, even if it's when that time of year when everyone's living in the field and harvesting and it, that's all, it's all about that, you don't do that on, on Shabbat. You rest on the Sabbath, okay? God is gonna make that provision for you and that is not a burden. That is God being gloriously, right, uh, giving and he wants you to rest for goodness sake, right? So, so they aren't violating either one of those things. They are not harvesting. They are not harvesting. And um, I forget what the other one was. Anyway, Deuteronomy 23 and Exodus 34, they're not breaking either one of those. So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Unlawful in the oral law. Unlawful, because rubbing your hands together to get the grains, that's work. That's been redefined in the oral law's work. Jesus answered, and this is how you talk to an educated person. Have you never read? <laughs> right? And this passage that they're gonna look at from 1 Samuel 21 is, is the passage they argue, they argue about this a lot. It's when David goes into the temple and eats the bread of the presence. They argue about this all the time. Uh, David and his men were on a mission and they go into the temple and the only thing there is to eat is the bread of the presence, which only the priests are supposed to eat. And they eat that. So what does that say? That, that means that their hunger is more important than this observance that only the priests. God puts your, your hunger first. His caring for you, he puts that first. Okay? So we're, we're gonna see that, okay. Um, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need. In the time of Abiathar, now I know that really bothers you because the high priest in the story is Ahimelech. I know that bothers you. I had to look this up. It was in the time of Abiathar. In, in that, so it was in that period of time. So really picky people will say, well, there's a, there's a mistake there in the Bible because it wasn't Abiathar, it was Ahimelech. That's not how it works. Let me, let me read my note. 
Ahimelech was high priest when the incident happened. The reference to Abiathar is an indication commonly used to indicate the section of the book where the reference is found. Okay. If, if we find a fault in the Bible, it's usually our fault. It's not the Bible's fault. Okay. Um, uh, so he, uh, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is only lawful for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for men, not men for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And here's how I, I paraphrase that. If you're a Pharisee, what is your dearest point of orthodoxy? The Sabbath. That's the one thing everybody agrees on there. They don't agree on anything. Maybe circumcision and the Sabbath. That's about it. This is their dearest point of orthodoxy. And Jesus says, I'm Lord over that. What's your dearest point of orthodoxy? That's true, that's right, right? Um, are you reformed or are you into, you know, whatever, Pentecostalism, that's your orthodoxy? And it's biblical and you can justify it. I'm not saying it's not, it's not right. Jesus is Lord over that. His Lordship is absolute. I don't know of any other way to say this. I'm not saying orthodoxy is wrong. Orthodoxy is a good thing. Orthopraxy is even better. It's, it's good to believe the right things. It's really good to orthopraxy is what you do. It's really good to do the right things. But Jesus is Lord over everything. One of the most disturbing things about this, and I, I, it's hard to talk about sometimes not crying, his lordship is even over your family. Clearly, the teaching is faith comes before family. Now, I hope that me being a follower of Jesus makes me a better father and a better husband. It should. But follow me. Let me go say goodbye to my father. Let me go bury my father. No, you follow me. Faith comes before family. That's part of the absolute lordship of Jesus. Now, I don't think he's going to command me to do anything that's going to hurt my family or anything. Don't get me wrong. And I don't know how, you know, focus on the family. That's a good thing. To focus on your family is a good thing. But um, the, the lordship of Jesus is absolute. Take up your cross and follow me. One of the non-negotiables is you have to leave everything. Okay, sorry. <clears throat> no, I'm not sorry. Well, <laughs> yes, I sort of am sorry. Um, but I just think this is important. I mean, I'll, I'll yuck it up all day and make this as entertaining as I can. But Jesus' lordship is absolute. It's absolute. Um, yeah, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And there's, a, there's another way to, there are two ways to interpret that last statement. Clearly NIV capitalizes Son of Man, and so it means, it thinks it's referring to Jesus, which I think is probably the correct thing. But what you need to know is in the, the idiom Son of Man in Hebrew just means perfect, I'm person, just means person. This, the, to this day, when you go to Israel, you'll hear people say, ah, oh, Ben Adam, 
Ben, son, Adam, man. Oh, that, oh, that Ben Adam, he's a great guy. It's, it just means person. And so some people who sort of try to put Jewish, you know, understand the New Testament from a Jewish point of view, which is a good thing, they'll say, this is Jesus reinforcing the first thing he said. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So, um, so people, people are even master of the Sabbath. I don't like it that way, frankly, but I just want you to know there's another way to read that. I don't like it. I don't want it to be that way. So, okay. So, chapter three. Man, we're going really good. I, am I completely lost on time? We're supposed to stop at 10.20, right? 10.05. Okay. Well, why did I write 10.20 on my hand? I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm as dyslexic as a person can get, so he says as he writes something with his left hand. I spent the first year or two of my life in, in elementary school actually writing backwards, writing everything backwards, and nobody caught it. I know, sad. A sidebar, I hate it. let's just talk about myself. My favorite subject. Um, part, of, part of my disability is my brain constantly reads things wrong. Okay? We have a plumbing company where I live in uh, Franklin, Tennessee, called Hiller, H-I-L-L-E-R. And it's on the sides of their trucks. Every time I see that truck, guess what I read? Hitler. Every time. And it startles me every time. That's a glimpse into my little world, the, my, little twist, my little twisted world. But I, I share this because I want to make a, a very important point. That's a disability. Okay, I'm messed up. My brain doesn't work like it should. It sees things wrong. But now for 62 years, what does that mean? Whenever I read a word that's wrong, my brain starts thinking about, well, what is the right word? So what my brain is really good at is finding the right word. And God has used that my brokenness to help me be a songwriter. Because I can, my brain is, my file of looking at other words just goes, I'm really good at that. But that comes from my fragileness and my woundedness. Okay, God uses our wounds and our fragileness because that's all he has to work with. If you're this person who thinks, isn't God lucky that I'm on his team? <laughs> Think again. But isn't it so like him that he uses our fragileness? Isn't that great? So if you see me not knowing what time it is, sorry, that's just part of my, part of what makes me such a fascinating person. <laughs> okay, another time, three, we're in three. Another time, hear that? That's a loose chronological connector. It's not next day. He's putting together stories. There are five stories in Galilee, and in a minute he's going to put together five stories in, in Judea. So he's collecting stories. He's editing a little bit. So another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And dirt, nerve damage or whatever, you know, when your nerves are damaged, your muscles shrivel, wasted. Uh, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse him. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath, right? So it's, it's chapter three, and they're watching him now. We had one Sabbath 
when he could do something and, in chapter one and not be condemned and hounded. Those days are over. He can't do anything now on the Sabbath without people watching him, okay? So, uh, so they're watching him. He goes in the synagogue to, uh, to, on, 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 on the Sabbath. So they're watching closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with his shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Um, then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They remain silent because there's nothing they can say. Now, there is an interpretive principle that, that was as old as Jesus' time, and it is this. If you're confronted with a choice on the Sabbath, you must choose the way that preserves life. That's the principle, okay? Sabbath is all about life, right? And if, if there's something uh, that happens, if, you're, if your donkey falls in a hole, that's the, in the, I think in the Talmud, that's the example they give. If a donkey falls in a hole, if there's water in the hole so he can drink, you leave him down there because he's not gonna die. But if there's no water, he may die down there. And so even if it's the Sabbath, it's okay to pull him out. You've got, you must choose the way that preserves life. Okay? And that's what Jesus is alluding to uh, at this point. Uh, yeah, to save life or to kill. Remember that, to save life or to kill. Okay, file that away in your mind because that's gonna come back. He looked around at them in anger. Okay, there's the emotional Jesus of Mark. He knows exactly what's coming and it really ticks him off. He's mad for this man who he, he's gonna, about to heal. He's mad that he's being judged. He's mad that they're putting this burden on the people. Who knows, there are maybe a thousand things he's mad about, but he's mad. Now, it is not a sin to become angry. Paul says, in your anger, sin not. There are things in this world that you should be angry about, okay? God says in Exodus 34, when he reveals himself to Moses, I'm slow to anger, but he gets angry. It just takes him a while to get angry. So, uh, so this is not wrong that Jesus is angry, and it's not that only Jesus can get angry and we can't because he's the son of God. There are things that you should be angry about. Okay. Now, that doesn't become an excuse to be angry and beat people up, which is what I wish it was that, but it's not that. <laughs> so, um, so Jesus uh, looks around. He's angry and deeply distressed. What is ESV? My, where's my ESV brother? What's it got? Grieved? What does ESV have? What? At, okay, he was grieved. You got it? Grieved. Okay, grieved. Okay, so at first he's angry, but then I, I looked up this word too, and it is such a long word, um, I, I can't even pronounce it. Um, but this word is a hapax legomena. Why use a little word that everyone can understand when you can use a big word that no one understands? Hapax legomena means this is the only place it occurs in the Bible. So it's kind of hard to know what it means because we don't have other examples of other contexts to see. But uh, the, the translation that, that, um, 
that the lexicon had was he felt sorry for. So that grieve sort of captures that. So in, in sort of almost from one moment to the next, at first he's really angry, and then he kind of feels sorry for them, that they are the way they are. That's this look into the complex emotions in Mark that, uh, that, that, you know, that only Mark has. So he's sorry that they're so stubborn. He's grieved. So he's not just angry. He's not that sort of person to just be angry. He's really sad. And it is sad, isn't it? Look at what they're missing. These are the leaders. They know more about scripture than anyone. And they're judging people and putting this burden on people. It doesn't have to be this way, see? So he's grieved. He's really sorry. He feels sorry. So he's angry and then he's grieved because they're so stubborn. So he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was completely restored. So unmiraculous miracle, correct? I'm not saying it's not a great miracle. I'm saying he does it unmiraculously. No lightning bolts from his fingertips, right? No pronouncement, just stretch it out. And all of a sudden, whatever that must have been like, it was all shriveled and all of a sudden it becomes healthy. Okay, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, his hand was completely restored and the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. It's chapter three and a plot has already begun to kill him. But why? And I thought a lot about this this, this morning. I spent a lot of time thinking about this morning. It's because Jesus is attacking their authority when it comes to the Sabbath. He's doing things that they can't say he shouldn't do. He's healing people. Well, they're saying that you shouldn't do that, but he's doing miraculous healings. And when he confronts them, there's nothing they can say. All, the, only, the only option left is to kill him. That's, all, that's the only thing left I can do is kill him. Okay? And it's chapter three. So um, I, I didn't bring it with me, but when I've been doing my homework and, and charting all the different plots to kill him. And this is the first one. This is when it begins. So was he grieved at their hardness of heart? I think so. No, it says he was grieved because of their hardness, the hardness of their heart. Yes, he was grieved at the man's situation too, but he's going to fix that. He can't, he can't fix the Pharisee's heart. That's right, it's free will. So, yeah, But isn't it, that's the side of his, of his character in regards to the Pharisees we don't think about very much. We know he's mad at them. He calls them brood of vipers, you know, that sort of thing but he, it really grieves him that they're that way. I'm, I'm really so sorry that you guys feel this way. You're so clueless. I'm, you know, I'm grieved. So, um, and the Herodians, let me just say this. Um, we're not sure who the Herodians are. It's a term that we're not really sure. Uh, Herod the Great's long gone, right? Um, some people think it may be some leftovers from Herod, I don't think that's a very good idea. Some people think that this is the New Testament's name for Essenes. Because the Essenes were backed by Herod. They exist, he was very pro-Essene. And they think that maybe that's the, that's the New Testament's name for uh, an Essene. Okay? So Jesus withdrew. 
Okay, let me, before you even look at it, okay, he's going to withdraw to the lake. Is he going to be alone? No. No. He can't get away from the people. And I tell you, this is almost uniquely marking. If you read a verse and it talks about the large crowd he can't get away from, that's Mark. Because Mark is very interested in this. Okay, so he withdrew um, with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When he heard... Uh, when they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, which is in the south. Jerusalem is in Judea. Idumea, which is uh, south of that. It's the old Edom. It's the old land of Edom. Um, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. That's up north. So basically, he's, he's, he's got a map in his head. They're coming from everywhere. He just sort of described north and south. They're coming from everywhere. Um, because of the crowd, there they are, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Now, you're, you and I, are we're just used to reading over that, and I'm sorry if I'm making too big a point out of this, but I think Mark is making a big point out of this. When you engage with this text, with your imagination, you just imagine there's this huge crowd they are pushing him into the lake. He does not sit in a boat because the acoustics are better over water. Have you heard that? That's been preached to death. That's not why he gets in a boat. He gets in the boat so they won't push him into the water. They're pulling at him and pushing him. And so he gets in the boat because of the crowd. Um, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. See how we're hearing that over and over again? Okay. Jesus went up into the hills and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. Um, he appointed 12, designating them Apostles. Now they are disciples up to this point. Now they are apostles. Uh, apostle, apostolos, originally referred to a ship. It was a word that was used to designate a ship because a ship is sent, it goes places. Okay? But the way language changes over you know, millennia, uh, it, 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 you can translate it. They're, they are going to become his sent ones. That's what the apostles are. They're people who are sent. Okay? So he appointed them, designating them apostles. Um, and he almost certainly didn't use the word apostle because he, he's, not, he's not a native Greek speaker. He speaks Hebrew or Aramaic. And the word he would have used is the Hebrew word sheliach. That's, that's the Hebrew version of apostle, sheliach. So they are his sheliachim, that's the plural form. And the Sheliach is the authoritative representative in Judaism. I want to buy a piece of property, and and uh, you know I can't I can't go look at it. So so Bill, you know Bill's my Sheliach. So I say Bill, I'll, I'm willing to pay a thousand acre. Go look at this land, and you tell me what you know what you think. Whatever you decide, I'll be bound to. You are my Sheliach. So Bill looks at the land. He goes, you know, this is really good, but it's, it's not 1,000 acres, 1,500. Well, he can't do that. 
He can't, you know, jack up the price because I told him a thousand. He's bound by that. But if it's a good deal, he can say, yeah, Mike wants it. I'll take it. And I'll be bound by what he says. That's how it works. He is my, kind of like a lawyer. He's my authoritative. He has my authority. And the decisions he makes, I have authorized him to make those decisions for me. That's what it means in Judaism. And that's the power that the apostles, the Sheliach of Jesus have. They are speaking his word with authority. They have his authority when they speak his word. And we'll see that they are able to do his work because what happens when they go out? They start doing miracles too. They're healing people and casting out demons. They are the sent ones, his authoritative representatives, okay? Sheliach, his Sheliachim. Yeah, power of attorney, something like that. That's why, I, I mean, I hate to bring lawyer into this, but uh, it's kind of, it's, that, it's that, that way. So it, it's a scary thing when you, you know, preach or teach or, you know, when you speak in Jesus' name, you have, Bill would say, you, are, you have a concealed dignity as a person who speaks for Jesus. So you don't just go half, you know, off half-cocked and, and say what you think and that sort of thing. It's serious business, isn't it? It's serious business to represent the absolute Lord. And he's given you his authority as his sent, because we are his sent ones. As I, uh, yeah, no. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. That's the language. So he calls the 12 around him and he appoints them, Sheliak, because he's just about to do that. He's going to send them out. Um, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority. See the language? To have authority uh, to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. And Mark's list of the disciples has more nicknames in it than any of the other lists. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, that's his nickname. Um, James, uh, son of Zebedee and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, because they were so fiery, right? Which means son of thunder. Okay, translate that for us, thank you. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew. Interesting, that's not his name. He's the son of Tolmai. Bar is Aramaic for son. In Hebrew, it's Ben, you know that. Benjamin, Benjamin, this is Bar. Bar he's the son of Tolmai. So we don't even know his name. We know his father's name. Matthew, that's one of his nicknames, because his name's not Matthew, it's Levi. I'm convinced that Matthew is a name that Jesus gave him. Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, which also means he may have been Matthew's brothers. Thaddeus. Now, I think Thaddeus is a nickname. It means big-hearted. I think that's a nickname Jesus gave him. Simon the Zealot. Now, what, what will all the commentaries say? Well, there's a zealot movement and that Simon one of these zealots and isn't it something? I've said this. I've taught this for years. That Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, that's the proof of this power that Jesus has to bring different people together. The zealot movement doesn't start till 30 years later. So uh, Simon the Zealot, I think that's a nickname. He's just, he has a lot of zeal. I think Jesus gave it to him. What's my academic reason? I really want it to be this way. <laughs> but, but I have done my homework, right? I'm not just going off half cocked. I've done my homework. 
to try to prove that my point's right, okay? So I suggest to you that that, that may be a, a nickname that Jesus gave him. Simon, the, the, the zealous one, the Kanani is Kana is the word for zealous. And Judas Iscariot. Now I would like to suggest to you that that's a nickname. Ish is the word for man. Kirioth is the word for village. Now there is a village called Kirioth. Kirioth. Uh, so this could be, the, and this is the 99% position. So, you know, beware of what I'm about to say because I may be going off half cock, but I think it's a really cool idea. Ish Sikari. Sikari is, 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 a, is the name for knife, a knife. And there is a party called the Sikari. And they were started in 6 AD. So the dates work. And guess what the name of the man is who started the Sikari movement? Judas the Galilean. Okay, so here's, here's what I think. I think, remember Colson? Remember Colson's nickname? What'd they call him? The Hatchet Man. That was his nickname. Same thing. I think Jesus gives him the name. He's the knife man. He's the knife man. Same thing as hatchet man. Now that may, may be absolutely crazy, but I just think it's a really cool idea. So there it is. That's my academic reason. You know, in the halls of academia, that doesn't go for, for much. But, I, but look at my evidence. There's all these nicknames that don't appear anywhere else. And I think he's, Peter remembers everyone's nickname. He knew him better than anybody. So there it is. But do not argue with anybody about that. Because you will lose. <laughs> you will lose. Um, we'll, we'll get into this next one. It's time to stop. I, I just want you to know that when we come back, we're going to look at the, a, a, a large structure. We're not just going to be going verse to verse when we get back. We're going to look at a large structure that has to do uh, with this. So we, you wanna, let's, let, let me stop right here. And, uh, and then we'll take a break.